You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. This is Luke chapter 19, verses 37 to 40. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Old Testament reading and sermon text for today is from the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of of later things yet to be among those who will come after. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. It is a holy and wonderful thing to call you father. I mean, that you're not an aloof father, you're not an abusive father, you're not a distant father, but you are um, deeply concerned with teaching us about how to live life well. That you deal with our sins, you receive us and you feed us and you nourish us and you send to us. Um, but God, you teach us. You model for us. You, you help us to to know what to pay attention to and, and what a skilled, wise life is marked by. So God, may we not be foolish sons and daughters, but may we listen to the voice of our Father and may we learn um, the subtleties of how you teach and may we learn to pay attention to what you tell us to pay attention to and may you help us to uh, learn what impulses in us we, we should resist um, help us to, to know um, what impulses in us are good and right and should be pursued. Teach us, Father, this summer again as we turn to the wisdom section of your word. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, this summer we continue um, our tradition of going to wisdom literature and spending the summer there. So for those of you who are anticipating a return to David and First Samuel and all that is to come. You should stick around for the whole summer 
And I won't tell you exactly when we're going to get there, but it will be, well, it'll be at the end of the summer. So um, for this summer, we are going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the most enigmatic books in all of Scripture. Um, it is uh, also, if you go to commentaries, we'll find one of the most widely and varied and strangely interpreted books in all of the Scriptures, maybe rivaling Revelation, probably not quite, but, um, but pretty close. And uh, we are going to spend our summer in this book, this book that is, well, it's puzzling at places. Have you ever spent weeks, as a good friend of mine did, and lots of money finishing out your basement, only to have heavy rains come, flood that basement, mold deform, and you then have to tear the entire thing out and start over? That's what this book is about. Um, had a good friend, one of my dearest friends. He worked hard. He was headed into his senior year of college, uh, played on the football team. He worked as hard, if not harder, than everyone else on the team. He spent hours in the weight room. Um, he spent hours running. He ran and lifted weights and worked and invested in other players, only to come to the very first game of the season. And his good friend, who was playing football fullback for just a handful of weeks, um, ran through the line, hit the linebacker with such incredible force. I was the fullback. Um, and the fullback rolled up, hit the guy's knee, blew out his MCL. His entire football career was over. That's what this book is about. Have you ever gone to bed at night thinking, I don't know if I can take another day if the sun would just not come up tomorrow? And then to be awakened as the sun stubbornly refuses to stay below the horizon and comes up yet again. That's what this book is about. Have you ever invested your life in a career thinking this is the company I'm going to work for for the rest of my life? I'm going to um, excel here. I'm going to serve here. I'm going to be excellent in the work that I do. I'm going to do everything I can at this job to excel and be as skilled a worker as I can possibly imagine, only to find yourself the next day that they're removing your entire field. That's what this book is about. Today we're going to look at the first 11 verses, and today is a bit of an orientation. The class that we're about to embark in as we study the book of Ecclesiastes this summer is a strange class, an enigmatic class. Um, The teacher himself is filled with all kinds of experiences and loves to turn a turn of phrase and a turn of words to cause us to reconsider everything. So today is orientation day. Are you ready? I don't have a syllabus, not that quite that prepared, but Solomon does have a syllabus for us, and it's here in these first 11 verses. But in order to get there, I want to take a few minutes on the front end to first um, answer the question, what is that? As we talk about rolling up your knee, the very first game of your final football season that you've worked so hard for, as we talk about losing your job just when you've begun to, to, to get in a groove and find Um, the hang of it, Um, when we talk about the stubbornness of the sun, it just refuses to not come up every morning. What is that exactly? Then, after we've defined that, um, I want us to consider just 
three phrases, three terms um, that, the, that, that Solomon uses throughout this book that are going to come up over and over and over and over again um, that we need to spend just a little bit of time defining. And then we're just going to break down these 11 verses as it lays out for us essentially an outline of his argument in Ecclesiastes. So, what is that? I think it's best, and some of you will groan, and it's okay. My kids will groan. They've been studying this in school. Um, if we, 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 we define what that is by telling a story, at least one angle on a story um, of the last few hundred years here in the West. <laughs> so, I want to give you a history lesson, a small history lesson, a philosophical history lesson that begins with the Renaissance. Um, uh, some of us w- grew up in educational systems, um, learning about the dark, evil, medieval time period that gave way to a period of light and enlightenment and, uh, and knowledge. And this move from medieval times through the Renaissance into the Enlightenment um, uh, 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 brought us to this season that we're now on the very, very tail end of called modernity. And one way that that story is told is we all lived in the dark, enslaved to superstition and religion and um, crazy, crazy thoughts about trolls living under bridges and all kinds of wild imaginings about how the world actually was. But then a day come where we broke free of the shackles of religion. We broke free of the shackles um, of superstition um, and a light dawned in the world such that the world could be seen and understood. Artists could finally express themselves. Beauty could actually come back into the world um, and we could finally be free of the shackles of the dark ages. This is, in fact, a terrible way to tell the history of the world and particularly an unfolding of what took place in those few hundred years and in the centuries since. In fact, the, the Renaissance, and, the, and, and as it gave way to the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment gave way to modernity, was essentially this. It was an attempt to break free of a, a world that is subject to God, lives that are subject to God, definitions that are subject to God, and, and to then take the world um, as we encountered it and attempt to shape it, to shepherd it, if you will, to make it into the kind of world we wanted rather than the world that simply was. And one of the things that we are discovering now on the back end of that long, dreaded experiment um, is that it was an attempt to shepherd the wind. It was, as the author of Ecclesiastes says, vanity of vanities, vapor of vapors. It was something that could not get us where we thought we could go. Another way to think about it, it was an attempt to live completely and wholly blind to anything beyond what we could see, what we could touch, what we could smell, and what we could feel. It was an attempt to bind um, the, 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 our understanding of the world and how we lived in that world um, uh, uh, solely and completely in the phrase that the author will use repeatedly in his book, completely and utterly under the sun. 
with nothing beyond the Son to be answerable to, nothing beyond the Son that created the world and situated the world and gave us the givenness of the world, to simply live within the realm of what we could measure and what we thought we could eventually control. We've arrived at a moment in history, um, I I believe, where we're, we're actually beginning to see how vain those attempts actually were. With all the enumerations and um, exciting uh, developments within technology, what has the last century brought us? But more death than was even thought imaginable 200 years ago. Uh, more suffering, more confusion, more division than we ever thought possible. The author of Ecclesiastes is attempting to help us look at reality. Um, as we've experienced it, as it's unfold, unfolded in history, to take a serious, sober look at the, um, the, the immediate context of our lives um, and to take a step back and take a, a consideration of the, the, the broader context of the world and history itself and to ask a question, what is all of that? What do we do with all of it? Um, I... You would be tempted, as you read these words, particularly this opening chapter, to think that the book of Ecclesiastes is, in reality, a book of despair. Um, It's been thought so by many, many commentators. That, That what we get in Ecclesiastes is essentially an author who throws up his hands, can't make sense of anything in the world, and says, I guess this is the best we can do. I actually want to hold out to you that the book of Ecclesiastes is essentially, and and maybe even most fundamentally, uh, about joy. It is an instruction manual about how do we rightly order our lives and understand our lives under the sun such that all of life can be pursued with a kind of joy, a kind of gratitude. That we can... Um, have our um, expectations of, of what life will look like and what parenting will look like and what work will look like and, and what natural disasters will look like and what basements will look like with an enormous amount of rain. Um, how we can look at all of that and do so with joy. It is a part of the great biblical tradition of wisdom literature. Um, in summers past, we've spent our summers in Proverbs This summer, we're going to work our way section by section through the book of Ecclesiastes to learn about joy, to to learn about rightly understanding the problems that we, if we're honest, can look at and see. Um, Before we launch into defining three terms or three phrases, I want to to speak specifically to uh, different, different groups of you who may or may not be in this audience. Um, in the first place, for those of us who've come to believe that what the Bible teaches is a, a vision of history in which God is winning and will win, in which the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, that righteousness, um, well, that the establishment of righteousness and justice and peace and goodness on the earth will not be a Hail Mary pass on the last day, um, but God is slowly building his kingdom um, like leaven in a lump of flour. Um, there is the tendency, the temptation, 
For those of us who have come to see that in the scriptures, to think that that process is something that we can manage. Ecclesiastes is a perfect prescription um, to to answer the, the possible hubris or the attempt to control and make sense of the world um, apart from a a clear vision like Ecclesiastes provides. Um, Many of us have have come to see these things and to believe these things, and the danger as you do so is that the reality is, is you will encounter resistance, you will encounter suffering, you will encounter your own failures and the failures of those around you. And the temptation in that moment is to despair and to lose faith. Ecclesiastes sets the table for us in such a way that we know what we ought to expect. We know what we should encounter as we pursue that. Secondly, um, for those in this room who aren't Christians, uh, maybe you've wandered in here, you were invited by a friend, um, you were just curious, what do these weird people believe? Um, here's what I think Ecclesiastes will help you do. I I think oftentimes we try to bury our head in the sand and not look and see the world as it is, to to not look at society, to to not look at just the natural world in and of itself as it actually is. And, And yet, even despite our best efforts to shove our fingers into our ears, to close our eyes and go la, 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 as loud as we can, um, the, the brokenness, the fact that something's not working always finds a way in, always finds a way to grab your attention. It can be something as stupid and small as your car not starting because there's a really smart chip in your engine that doesn't know your car is trying to start. It could be something as major as disease or COVID or floods. Um, it can be something as, as annoying as, well, basically everything that has to do with politics nowadays. Um, it can be whatever um, you may think. But, 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 but we begin to, to be confronted by, in some small ways, in some more significant ways, and sometimes overwhelming ways, with the realities that, that whatever it is that we've been trying to do, either for the last several decades or the last several centuries, it's not quite working out the way we thought it would. It's not quite going the way that we thought technology, where technology would bring us. We can't quite shepherd the universe, control the outcomes, produce the kind of lasting meaning and joy and hope that we thought a godless world would create. I mean, much of what was born out of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment was um, a desire to end religious wars, that, that, that really at the heart of all real conflict in the world and the horrific things that happened towards the end of the Middle Ages and the birth of the Reformation, um, that if we could somehow um, create a world where everyone just agreed, no matter what you believe, to live as though there is nothing beyond the sun. They're just life under the sun, if we all agreed to interact on those terms, then everyone would just get along. The reality is, is that's simply not what's happened. We've had more war, more death, uh, more destruction since that move than prior to it. And last, for those of you who find yourself in a place of just trouble, Uh, The waves of life that just don't make sense. They just keep coming. And it feels like you're drowning. 
Like there's nothing to take hold of, nothing to grab hold of. Nothing to begin to make sense of your life and a place to begin to push off in order to build the kind of life you hoped you would have. In one of the most counterintuitive moves I think you'll find in all of Scripture, I believe Ecclesiastes gives you a place to set your feet and know that the waves are coming. And they just won't stop. They'll just keep coming and coming and coming. But here, at least, is a place to stand. Here, at least, is a place to look out and see the waves. Um, We went to Florida a while ago, several months ago. And you know you go to the ocean, and you're facing the beach, um, and you're just at the point where the waves, if they hit, are just above your head. Um, If you face the beach, you have no idea when they're coming. And they don't come with any sort of regular rhythm. Um, it's as though God in his joy likes to change things up just to see if he can drown you. Um, and, and so you're facing the beach and then a wave hits and then it's calm. And then a wave hits and you expect in the next moment you're going to have another piece of calm. But instead three more waves hit you like boom, 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 boom. The next thing you know you've lost your footing and you're swimming around. But when you turn around and look and you see what's coming and you see where you're standing, and you have your feet set as you see those string of waves coming at you, well, it's a totally different experience. I think Ecclesiastes helps us to turn around and expect the waves. Also, Ecclesiastes gives us a place, again, in one of the most counterintuitive ways imaginable, a place to set our feet and to laugh as the waves hit us in the face. So, there's your large orientation. Now, let me give you three terms to consider. Um, Three terms that we need to think through and have in front of our mind if we're going to understand where this book is headed. The first phrase is vanity. It appears there in verse 2. Listen, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. If you're reading from the NIV, I think it says meaningless. Meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And that is one of the worst translations in the history of mankind. Vanity, frankly, isn't much better. Um, the, the, the word that, that is um, used here is hevel. Um, it, it is a word that simply means mist, fog. Um, what the author here is saying is not emptiness, emptiness. He's not saying meaningless, meaningless. Um, in fact, he's going to point to a whole number of things that have a great deal of meaning. Instead, he's trying to point to the fact that, um, that these things, these realities, these ways um, by which the world seems to function and, and the ways in which we function in the world are, are, are not meaningless. They're like vapor. Have you ever tried to shepherd the fog. Have you ever had tried to direct it? Unless you went to like one of those churches that has fog things. Like, have you ever tried that? It's there. It has meaning. It does stuff. It, it, it blocks things. It, it keeps you from seeing things as clearly as you thought you would see them. It sometimes has a nice calming effect unless you're driving in the mountains. Um, it does all kinds of things. It's not emptiness. It's not meaningless. It's just not controllable. It's not changeable. 
Um, if, if you're driving in the mountains and you don't want the fog, you, you can't just flip a switch and make the fog go away. It's there. You can't direct it. You can't move it. You can't command it. It's simply and absolutely there. And so this phrase, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, don't hear that phrase as emptiness, emptiness, all is emptiness. Um, don't hear that phrase as meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Hear it as vapor, vapor, all is vapor. All is unshepherdable, all is uncontrollable, all is outside of the purview of your and I's sovereignty. Um, he's going to illustrate what he means by that in the verses that follow. The next phrase I, I want to um, invite you to consider is the phrase shepherding the wind, which is um, a, a theme that's going to come up again and again and again in this book. It is Solomon's, I think, apt description of life lived under the sun. We'll get to that phrase next. It is um, all of our attempts are at best like trying to redirect the wind, trying to make it go where we want it to go, trying to produce and control the outcome that we want to come out of whatever it is we're setting out to do. Um, Such attempts are like shepherding vapor, directing vapor. You can't be very good at it. You can ride the wind on a sailboat, Um, You can feel the wind on your face, but you can't make the wind do what you want the wind to do. The last phrase I want to point out to us is the phrase under the sun. That phrase is used um, 35 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And this phrase under the sun, um, I, I had first heard it and read it years ago as everything that is. Um, That's not an accurate description of what the author means by the phrase under the sun. What he means by under the sun is within view of this life. Um, All that takes place under the sun is not all that takes place in the universe. It's not all that takes place um, uh, including what you can't see or perceive. Uh, Under the sun refers to life lived um, within the scope. In other words, all you can see is that which lies between birth and death and all the things you touch and smell and hear and say. Physical world, the measurable world, the, um, the, the world that is implicit to our senses under the sun. So those three phrases... Vanity or vapor, shepherding the wind, and under the sun. Um, just to keep in front of you, one of the, um, one of the main themes that's going to come up, it's actually the presenting problem in the book of Ecclesiastes, is how much of life is like trying to shepherd cats. Have you ever met cat shepherder? I did see one time in my neighborhood uh, somebody walking their cat on a leash, And it seemed to be working, so it almost kind of ruined this metaphor, but I'm just going to go with it, because they weren't walking more than one cat, and I'm positive they had to drag the cat somewhere. So, 
There's our three terms. Now let's look at the particular introduction that Solomon gives us in verses 2 through 11 as he spells out for us the nature of the world and presents us with the problem. It begins with his primary theme. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He establishes what is going to be a book about joy with what sounds like despair. Vapor. All is vapor. All is wind. And then starting in verse 3, he's going to work through a series of images to prove that proposition. That all is vapor. So, How does he do it? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He spins the problem there and presents us with um, another angle on his his particular claim in verse 2. All is vapor. Another way of saying it is, for all the toil that you do in this life, what do you actually gain? Think that one through for a second. What do you actually gain when it's all said and done? One of the things that the image of under the sun brings to mind is the fact that the horizon of death is always rushing towards you. Always. And it may be rushing really, really fast for some of you. But not for others of you. But isn't it funny, even in that turn of phrase, most of you in this room immediately were comforted by the fact that it's not coming for you too fast. All of your efforts, all of your labor, all the money and the wealth that you accumulate, all the pleasures that you experience... What of substance is retained? Death's coming. And it will take all of it. At least according to life under the sun. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. Generation upon generation upon generation is born. They live the life they set out to live. They die. The next generation lives, lives the life they set out to live, sort of, and then they die. It just keeps on happening. Isn't that notable? More people are born. More people live. More people die. And nothing really changes. Oh, sometimes it gets fancier or faster. Sometimes you have screens in your pocket. Or like my dad, you have a big giant screen on a desk. Or you don't have a screen at all. Um, but in the end, the earth never changes. It just is there. Like we, we can have wave upon wave upon wave. Generation upon generation upon generation. Born into this world. 
and nothing fundamentally changes. Um, generation upon generation, living life merely under the sun. And yet we can't break free of the bounds, the limits, the constraints placed upon the world created by God. They're just there. You can scream about gender issues and sexuality, but the constraints and the framework that the God has established in the world, they're just there, never to go away. Verse 5 continues this cheerful meditation. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. It just happens every day exactly the same. Like you'd think for some variety it would come up at a different time. Like tomorrow, just to surprise everybody, we're going to bring the sun up at 3 a.m. It's going to be great. You guys are going to love it. Just to change it up. You want to get stuck in a rut? Let's move the thing. Or tomorrow, everyone gets to sleep in. We're going to cause the sun to come up at 11. Perfect. Come up at 11, have some breakfast, go to work. You'd think, right? Like if I were in charge of the sun, if I could shepherd the sun, I might redirect it just to change things up, maybe just to mess with, well, Nate. Who doesn't want to mess with Nate? Tomorrow, Nate, you're not going to know when the sun's going to come up. It may not come up. Just to mess around a little bit. But it just happens every single day. And I think right now of, of the famous quote from G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy. And there's a kind of sobriety that the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to have as we look and consider the fact that the sun just keeps going up and going down and going up and going down and going up and going down over and over and over again. But Chesterton, I think, clues us in to the goal of the author of Ecclesiastes. He talks about the infinite exuberance of a child to, to, to wake up every morning, to see the sun coming up and to say he did it again. He did it. Again, can you believe it? Like how many of us um, even think about the, um, the, 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 just the repeated cycle again and again and again of sunrise and sunset and sunrise and sunset, um, let alone stop for a moment and marvel. He did it again. Tonight, I think around six-ish, there will be in the West a light show like you have, could hardly imagine, except that it happened every evening previous. If it hadn't happened every evening previous, some of you would pay thousands of dollars to get a chance to see it. But it's there every single night. And just to jump ahead, that's one of the things that the author of Ecclesiastes points out to us. Look at verse 8. All things, even sunsets, are full of weariness. 
A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. Do you remember the first time you had a bacon cheeseburger? I do. I think I was 12. Somewhere in Texas. And it doesn't have to be bacon cheeseburger. We're going to stick with bacon cheeseburger because if you don't delight in bacon cheeseburgers, you should feel shame. Um, And I thought, like someone thought to combine the cow with the pig and to make a thing so delightful. And here it is. And so we went on a road trip, my family and I. I was 12. We went on a road trip and all three of us, my mom, my dad, myself, sat down and we had to make plans. We got to all ask for one thing on this trip. My dad asked that we would stop at every national park, national forest, national whatever, um, anywhere close to the route. We would find our way there and go and see whatever it is um, that had been deemed worthy of a national designation. So that was what he got. My mom, she asked that every hotel we stay in have a pool. (laughs) Nice thing. And I asked for, do you know what I asked for? I asked for the ability to eat bacon cheeseburgers for every meal. This was a 14-day road trip. Now you understand my girth. (laughs) What was strange, this meal, this delightful, palatable combination of a pig and a cow, perfectly melty cheese with some mayo and pickles and a perfectly buttered and toasted bun was that there's only so many bacon cheeseburgers you can eat until you grow weary of them. Even something as perfect and delightful as a bacon bacon cheeseburger, you, if you haven't arrived at that point yet, can grow weary of bacon cheeseburgers. Did you know that? My wife knows that. She was tired of them the first time she ate one. Um, The author of Ecclesiastes points out the reality, just the everyday experience of every single person in this room. You get tired of sunsets. You grow ungrateful for bacon cheeseburgers. The things that you once delighted to look at and see, they aren't delightful anymore. They're boring. They're tiresome in the language of Solomon. Vapor. All is vapor. Even your own tastes. Points out in this section that nobody has quite figured out how to direct the wind. Some friends and I, years ago, um, we had a trip planned to New York City. And what would happen the day before we were flying to New York City? A hurricane hits New York City. I wish I could have learned how to shepherd the wind. He sets an analogy for us. We, we spend our whole lives trying to pump more and more and more and more water into the, into the sea, but the sea never fills up. There is, um, and I think this is speaking to um, the un, un, unalterable reality of how the world actually is, as well as the insatiable desire that, that is in all of us. If you're trying to build a life um, that in which you will find 
perfect and finally complete satisfaction. It's like trying to pour water into the ocean until it's full. It's vanity. It's vapor. And last, in a particularly cheery moment in verse 11, he says, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. You do realize that your great-grandchildren will barely have any idea who you were. If they know at all. Like if you came and asked me my great-great-grandmother's name, this woman who undoubtedly spent her life serving and caring for others. I remember faintly echoes of some whispered stories. (laughs) I don't know her name. So here you are living your deeply significant life. It's really going to matter. It's going to change everything. In two generations, in your own family, no one will have any clue who you were or what you did. Like, I think he, I, it's like a pastor, I, it's weird, he was bald, they said he was bald, what was his name, Ryan, Bob, Brian, I think, like, vapor, it's all passing away like the wind, Spend your life pursuing pleasure with every ounce of vigor that you have. And let me promise you, you've got nothing on Solomon. Wearisomeness. Try to build a life of significance that matters, um, that that, that, um, really has a lasting impact on the world. No one will know your name in 50 years. Build a career, a job, in which you're trying to accumulate clear wealth. Wealth that can be invested. Wealth that can actually produce good. I'm doing all kinds of things and you will find yourself pouring water into the ocean trying to fill it up. You can't. Now the temptation every week that I'm going to give into just this once is... The author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, is going to set this stuff in front of us every week. And the temptation is for me, as the pastor, to resolve it every week. To get you all wound up, tied in knots, frustrated, and then just say, but don't worry, it's all going to be great. It's not where he's going to end. Um, to, to somehow give you a pass from thinking on these things and meditating on these things and letting these things haunt you. And I'm going to point the way that Solomon's going to take us. I'm going to point the way this week. I'm going to point the way probably every week. But I don't want that to resolve all the tension for you. Because what Solomon's going to do as he points the way forward is not come and dismiss everything he just said in this chapter. 
He's not going to come and say, ah, just kidding, it's not vapor. He's not going to come and say, ah, just kidding, you can be deeply satisfied by pursuing pleasure under the sun. He's not going to come along and say, ah, just kidding, your life can have significance and meaning under the sun. No, he's not going to resolve any of that for us. He's going to hold it up and say, this is how the world is under the sun. Now, how do you live well How do you pursue joy in that kind of world? That will be his resolution. It'll come to a handful of times in this book. But I want to point the way forward as it's contained, particularly in this nice little phrase that serves for us as a hint. The phrase, as you maybe have already guessed, is under the sun. The reality is is that life is not wholly defined by the phrase under the sun. And the kinds of pleasures that we're to find satisfaction in, the place where we're to find joy, is not to be found merely under the sun. And the kind of significance that that should mark our lives as we um, live them out here in this life and in this world is not to be defined merely in terms of the the framework of under the sun. The kind of remembrance that that we hope for. Um, Name that is known, remembered fondly, joyfully, gratefully even. It's not to be achieved under the sun. And I want to take a moment for, for those of us in this room well, for all of us in this room, much of the last hundred years can be defined as, as a society, as millions and millions of people doing everything in their power to live as though under the sun defines the nature of the universe. And you are surrounded by neighbors for whom this stuff keeps coming up. Um, the, the kind of significance they think their life should have, the kind of pleasure that they sought meaning in and hope in, the kind of security and strength that they thought wealth would provide or a successful career would provide. It keeps getting shaken. It keeps getting torn apart. Because you cannot live life forever with your fingers in your ears and your eyes slammed shut and making as much noise as possible to forget the fact that there is a God. A God who made all things. A God who sends those waves to crash against you. And so in the midst of a world like that, my prayer for us as a people is we'd be able to stand confidently hearing these words from Solomon, but also that there would be a note of sympathy and concern for neighbors who stubbornly, oftentimes sillily, is that a word? Sillily? I'll ask someone later. Um, Have sought to pretend like the world is all there is. 
And so they take um, their definitions of justice, their definitions of good, their definitions of evil, their definitions of beauty um, from the world as they see it. Without any consideration that there might be a God, there might be a transcendent word to be spoken over all of it. And so our call is to hold fast to that word and to recognize around us um, we are immersed in, surrounded by people in a city whose lives, whose way of pursuing life in that kind of world simply isn't working because it can't. Because it's not the way the world actually is. And we can scream and we can throw fits and we can invent surgeries and we can do all kinds of things. Everything um, in all of our technological and economic prowess. Establishing laws, building technologies, doing all that we can by our might to deny the world as it exists. But the world simply doesn't change. Because what we have in this world is not merely a world and a society and lives and children and marriages under the sun. But a society and lives and marriages and children before the face of God. Many of us in this room have, in a kind of like crazy pretend world, shut ourselves up in that kind of world. In order maybe to get along better, to not be thought so strange or odd or offensive or weird or bigoted or whatever new phrase is being turned against simply believing what the Bible says and what the church has always taught. And rather than living in line with reality as it actually is, um, we, we've kind of shut ourselves up. But here's the reality. Um, God in his mercy always sends the waves. And until you've found the place to set your feet, a place that gives thanks to God, a place that lives with a vision of and an understanding of and a kind of glad submission to his sovereignty over all things, until you've found that place to set your feet, all of those waves, even for those of us who are Christians and should know better, threaten us with despair. The last shimmer forward pointing I'll do this morning in a world like this one how do we find joy how do we live with a real meaningful kind of joy not a superficial one not a one that's just painted on our face or one that finds joy in just an endless pursuit of new more exciting pleasures or more and new exciting successes Well, I would contend that the secret, the answer to that question, as we'll see unfold over the next couple of weeks and, well, months, is is tethered to this table. The Eucharist is a declaration of thanksgiving as much as it is a covenant meal. It is receiving from the hand of God his mercy, his grace, the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And it trains us on how to receive everything else. So let's pray and prepare for communion. 